So the Mishnah, the first Mishnah is talking about the difference between love that depends on something and love that doesn't depend on anything, and a machloket, which is for God's sake, a dispute which is for God's sake, and a dispute that is, that is not for God's sake. So now let's go to the examples. The Mishnah says, what's an example of love that is dependent upon something? So the story is that David HaMelech, King David, had more than one wife, and therefore he had children who were half-siblings. And so David HaMelech had a son named um, uh, Amnon and a daughter named Tamar. And um, so they were half-siblings. And Amnon developed an unhealthy and immoral attraction to his half-sister and pursued her and pursued her. And... um, Eventually he had his way with her. And then the Torah tells us that he began to despise her. He hated her. In fact, the Torah says he, he hated her more than he used to love her. His hatred for her was so much that it actually out, it outdid his original love for her. Once he had his way with her, he hated her. Something awful. So the Mishnah is using this as an example of a person who loved another person, but really didn't love the person, loved something about the person, and as soon as they had what they wanted, the love for the person was gone. Then the Mishnah brings an example of a love that is not dependent on anything, and brings as an example David and Yonatan. David HaMelech, the same, the same King David, when he was much, much younger, he had a best friend named Yehonatan, Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul, Shaul HaMelech. King Saul, Shaul HaMelech, as you, as you may know, had a very strong dislike for David, especially once he found out that David is destined to become the king. Instead of his son, instead of Shaul's son, Yehonatan, David was going to become the king. Shaul had a very strong dislike for David, even though David was his son-in-law. And David and Yonatan were brothers-in-law. But Shaul hated him and Shaul wanted to kill him. And Yonatan, and Yonatan turned out to be David's greatest ally, his dearest friend, even though David, for him, was nothing but trouble. First of all, David was taking his place as the next king of Israel. And secondly, his defense of David nearly got him killed by his father several times. So Yonatan had nothing to gain from the friendship with, with David. And the, therefore, the Torah refers, the Mishnah calls their friendship a love that is not dependent or not because of anything. Their love was truly for each other. And therefore, their love survived every crisis, and there were many. And uh, in fact, it survived to the next generation and the next generation. And it was liter- literally an undying love. And then the Mishnah talks about the Machloket. What's an example of a dispute which is L'Shem Shamayim? The answer is Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai were two of the great sages of the Talmud who saw eye to eye on almost nothing. They were study partners. They studied together. They debated together. They argued together. And they disagreed on almost every single point of Jewish law that they learned. Every issue, nearly every issue, they came down on two opposite sides of the issue. Their opinions were were diametric opposites. Uh, Shammai was almost always uh, 
the stricter opinion, and Hillel was almost always the more lenient opinion, and all of their disagreements, all of their debates are recorded in the Mishnah, in the Talmud. And that, the Mishnah says, is an example of a machloket, of a dispute, which is for God's sake. And you can see that that disagreement continues on till this very day. The people are still studying the Mishnah and still studying their, 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 their debates and still taking sides on their, on their disagreements. The Machloket of Hillel and Shammai is alive and well. What's an example of a dispute that was not for God's sake? Of course, that was the one where Korach uh, stirred up a uh, mutiny against Moshe Rabbeinu and demanded that Moshe resign and that there be no leadership and that Korach have his way, everybody should be the same, etc. etc. You all know the story. And caused a terrible controversy and caused a terrible, terrible catastrophe for the Jewish people. And that Machloket died as quickly as it was born. Korach was swallowed up by the earth together with all of his co-conspirators and the Machloket came to a dramatic end exactly one day after it started. So it didn't last, it didn't last forever, it didn't even last more than 48 hours. So there you have the examples that the Mishnah is bringing. Okay, so basically you have the premise of unconditional love and conditional love and dispute for a higher purpose and dispute that is not for a higher purpose. So let's first of all turn our attention to this idea of unconditional love and realize something really important, relevant, and surprising. The, the, the Mishnah brings as an example love that, it was, that was conditional. Ava, Amnon, and Tamar. Now, Amnon and Tamar were siblings. Yes, they were half-siblings, but they were siblings. They were brother and sister. Now, a brother and sister, their love is supposed to be the quintessential unconditional love. The attraction, the, the, the love that exists between siblings, everyone knows that it's not based on any qualities. The attraction is, we are brother and sister. That is the attraction. It's unconditional. It's not because, she, because he's so handsome or she's so beautiful or he's so funny. Or it's not. It's because we're siblings. It's because we share a father, we share a mother. So how ironic is it that the Mishnah wants to bring out the ultimate conditional love and who does it turn out to be? Two siblings. And then the Mishnah wants to bring you an example of unconditional love and who is it? Two friends. Now friendships always are born out of conditions. Friends are attracted to each other because of the sense of humor, because of a shared ideology, because of a shared attitude, whatever it is. Friends always uh, connect with each other because of what they have in common. Because of the thing that they have in common. So surely David and Yoinison, originally their friendship was a conditional friendship like all friendships. They're friends because you both, your kids are on the same team in Little League. Or you're friends because, because you like the same restaurant. Or you're friends because whatever the thing is that, that brings you together. And yet they took their conditional love and they turned it into an unconditional love. So the Mishnah's message with these examples... Is a, is a message that is just as important as the mission itself. The mission is saying you should always strive for unconditional love. So a person is going to say, 
okay, well, uh, look, it's too late. My friendship is already based on things that we have in common. Or on the other hand, the person would say, oh, this, my, 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 this friendship is unconditional. It would never become conditional. So the Mishnah tells us, don't be so cocky and don't, be, and don't give up. If you have a relationship that you think is completely unconditional, the love is unconditional. Amnon and Tamar were brother and sister whose friendship was unconditional, right? Like siblings. But they made it conditional by involving something, by involving something shallow, they took an uh, intrinsic relationship and made it shallow. So you can take something that is not Tluyabedavar and you can ruin it and make it conditional and make what it was deep shallow. David and Yoinus, on the other hand, began their friendship because of common interests. And a person might say, okay, listen, our friendship is based on, uh, you know, it's an alliance, like most friendships. We, ally our, we align ourselves with, the same, with similar val- values. And, and that's, says the Mishnah, David and Yoinison began with a friendship that was conditional, but they worked on it and they transformed it into a love that was not conditional. It's very interesting how the Mishnah is careful to bring examples that are not just illustrations, but that make the message of the Mishnah deeper. That a person should never think that my unconditional relationship is is not vulnerable to any kind of failure, and that my conditional connections with other people can never become deeper than that. What's, What's really the important message here? Really the important message here is about ulterior motives. I just today saw a letter. Somebody wrote to the Rebbe, what do I do about the fact that I find myself, whenever I do a mitzvah, I find myself invariably doing it for an ulterior motive. Mishum So the Rebbe's answer to him was in Yiddish, the Rebbe wrote in Yiddish, and the, the opening words of the Rebbe's letter, Midem inyan daf menzayin zeyir for zichtig. With this subject, you must proceed with extreme caution. You got to be very careful. And the Rebbe says, why? Because this is one of the most common and the most effective ploys that the Yetzirah uses against a person to tell a person the good things that you're doing, you don't even mean it. So just stop doing it. And that is how the Yetzirah succeeds in getting people who are on a roll in doing good. Overnight they stop doing it. And everybody wants to know, why did you stop? And he says, well, you know what? I examined, I did this, I examined myself and I discovered that I did not even mean it. I'm doing it for ulterior motives. I'm going to stop doing it. And that's the Yetzirah celebrates a victory and spikes the ball in the end zone. So the Rebbe says, You have to be very careful when you start asking yourself this question, do I really mean it? You have to be very careful because you have to identify the source of these doubts. And, I, and, the, and the Rebbe says, I, tell, I guarantee you that the source of these doubts is not the good side of you, it's the self-destructive side of you, the Eitzah who wants you to stop doing them. And therefore, 
casts aspersions about the quality that they have. Oh, it's really ulterior, it's not really, it's not really pure, and you don't really mean it, and so therefore you just stop doing it. And that's destructive. Rabbi. Yeah. Rabbi. Yeah. Excuse me. Uh, I feel that it's my duty in the morning to, to pray Filata Shacha, to, to pray uh, several uh, chapters of Tehillim, and uh, uh, most of the time to put uh, uh, Tefillim. I feel it's my duty to thank God for, for everything that he gave me and for him being there to, to, to protect us. There are times that there are a lot of things going on in my, in my, in my head. A lot of things, a burden of, I don't want to say burden of life, like, like to take care of things while I'm praying and everything, things are, are, are going inside my head. So, so the Rebbe would tell people like me, hey, don't do it. Or you do it with Kavana, or don't do it. I'm sorry, Sassi. So, I'm sorry. I didn't explain it correctly because you understood exactly the opposite of what I was trying to exactly, say. Exactly, yeah, exactly the opposite, Sassi. The Rebbe means exactly the opposite. The Rebbe said so you have to be. Right. Because I have different right. thoughts while I'm praying. Right. So that's what the Rebbe is saying, that you have to be careful when you start worrying about your about the purity of the mitzvah. You have to be careful not to let such thoughts bother you because it is the Yetzirah who wants you to stop doing them because of the impurity. It's not perfect. The way you're doing it is not perfect. And the motive why you're doing it is not perfect. Yes, 100%. 100% opposite of what you said. Wow, and my conscience is killing me all the time when I'm not, like, tuned into the tefillah. Thank okay. you. Well, look. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, there's a chamuda. <laughs> Let's face it, we all do it. Oh, wow, what is it? A few years, her bat mitzvah. Let's face it. Leave close the door, please. What, you, made, you made my... You made my my ear, Rabbi, uh, because I I always have uh, bad thoughts that I'm not in tune with the with the tefillah. Okay, so, so we all do it. We all of us do it. You cannot be all of this time hundred percent. Mo- only Moshe, Moshe, what did they say? Sarat Rabim, Sarat uh, they say uh, misery, misery loves company. Misery, misery, love, misery loves company, but that doesn't make misery good. So yeah, you're right. We all do it. But listen to this. Listen to this with the Rebbe. Because this, by the way, for the Rebbe, this was a pet peeve. Because he, apparently he had this people coming with him to him with this question all the time. And, and not only that, he saw people who, put out, who, who stopped doing the right thing, and when he asked them why, they said, because I really could never get myself to be doing it in the perfect way. Or I found myself doing it for personal, for personal gain, and not for Hashem, or whatever. So, it, so the Rebbe developed an entire attitude about this, and, what, and, one of his, and one of his most common messages was this. Listen 
closely because this is very beautiful, special. The Gemara says, the Talmud says, Le'olam ya'asok adam batorah afilu shelo lishma. Shemitoch shelo lishma balishma. A person should always study the Torah even for ulterior motives. Why? Because from the ulterior motives, you will eventually come to doing it with a pure motive. So, the simple way to understand the Gemara is that right now, the way you're studying the Torah is, as they say in Yiddish, nishtazei ayayay. <laughs> the way you're studying the Torah right now, not so good. Not so good. But, don't stop. Because if you work at it long enough, and you continue to fake it, eventually you'll make it. Out of, out, of, out of doing it for ulterior motives, you will one day come to doing it with a pure motive. But you cannot stop doing it and hope that one day you'll wake up with a pure motive. That's not how it works. That's how, that's how we understand the Gemara. The Rebbe looked at the wording of the Gemara. This is so typical of the Rebbe. The Rebbe said, listen to the words that the Gemara chooses to use. A person should always study Torah even if it's with ulterior motives. Why? Because out of, the, out of the ulterior motives, you will come to a pure motive. The word in Hebrew is, out of the ulterior motive, there will rise a pure motive. From the inside of the ulterior motive, there will emerge a pure motive. In other words, even when you are doing it with an ulterior motive, you should know in the back of your mind that that is not why you're doing it. A person is a multi-layered creature. We are not, we are not two-dimensional. So when you say, oh, you know why I get up in the morning and go to shul? You know why I do that? Because in shul, I get to see my friends and I schmooze. And so a guy tells his, husband, tells his wife, I'm not going to shul anymore because I discovered that the only reason I go to shul is because I get to schmooze with my friends. So the wife says to him, wait a minute. Because the wife learned what the Rebbe said. So the wife says to him, no, 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 no. There is surely a part of you that is motivated by the prospect of having a good conversation with your friends over a piping cup of coffee. No question. No question. The ulterior motive is real. There is a part of you that is motivated by the social aspect of it. But that is not all there is to you. There is a deeper part of you. And that deeper part of you also wants to go to show. <laughs> you, can't, you can't let your ulterior motive hijack you and define you. Yeah, there is a part of you which is lazy and just wants to shoot the breeze. Sure. But there is a deeper part of you. And that deeper part of you also wants to go to shul. And you want to know why that deeper part of you wants to go to shul? Because it, it knows that going to shul is the right thing to do. There is a part of you that is already purely motivated. You don't feel it because you're not a very pure person. So you, therefore, you're more sensitive to, to materialistic feelings. But that doesn't mean 
that lurking inside of you, there isn't a godly soul that wants to go to shul for the right reason. So when you go to shul, you satisfy two parts of you. You satisfy the part of you that wants to schmooze, and you also satisfy the part of you that wants to daven, and one shall not cancel out the other. And that's what the Gemara means when it says, out of the, out of the ulterior motive shall emerge a pure motive. Meaning that within the ulterior motive, there was always a pure motive lurking. And the proof is that you can schmooze with your friends at the gym. You can schmooze with your friends at the pool, at a restaurant. Why do you want to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to go to shul to schmooze with your friends? Because your neshama, your brilliant neshama, has manipulated your materialistic attitude and used it to get you to go to shul. So actually, who's in control over here? The neshama is in control over here. And not only that, like a good wife, your neshama figured out a way to make you think that it was your idea. That you should go to shul to shmooze. But really, why are you schlepping out of bed and going to shul in the morning? Because it's shul and it's Shabbos and you should go to shul. Your neshama knows that and feels that. You, your, your conscious self may not feel that because you don't feel yourself being such a holy person, but you have a neshama inside of you which is as much you and is holy. So anytime a person is doing a mitzvah, and then says to themselves, you know, I'm not doing this mitzvah correctly, I'm not doing the, the mitzvah purely, I'm not doing it for the right reason. Wait, 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 wait. Who is not doing it correctly? Who is not doing it for the right reason? This, this, this is not so simple. This is going to become an Abbott and Costello routine. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. You, you, can't, you cannot narrow yourself down to being a one-dimensional, shallow creature. That's not who you are. So if you feel some ulterior motive, or if you feel distracted while you're davening, and halfway through the davening, you're wearing your tefillin and you're thinking about your job site, you should not forget that inside of you there is an neshama shanatata bi That inside of you there is a holy neshama. And that neshama, when you're wearing tefillin and you're saying the words of davening, does not think about your job site, even when you are thinking about your job site. There is a neshama inside of you that davens perfectly. And that neshama can only daven perfectly when you are wearing your tefillin. So therefore, you should never refrain from doing a mitzvah because you're not doing it perfectly because there is a part of you that is doing it perfectly. Let that part of you flourish. Let that part of you thrive even if the more materialistic and more tangible part of you is doing it for other reasons or is doing it with only half your, your focus and the other half of you is focused on other things. Okay, Sassy says he feels guilt. Good, we should feel guilt because all of us should be involved in the, in the best possible way and the only way to grow is to feel guilty. But not that the guilt should cancel the mitzvah. Never, never. The guilt should upgrade the mitzvah, but the guilt cannot cancel the mitzvah because there's a part of you, there is a part of you. This is not some, this is not some uh, vague, weird, theoretical element that lurks above you. This is you. This is you. 
So no, a person, a Jew can never say, I'm going to stop doing this good thing because I'm doing it. For, like a person who says, I'm not, I'm not going to give tzedakah anymore because I realize I do it only for the, I do it only for the accolades. I do it because of the glory and the honor that I get from the people who think that I'm so great for giving tzedakah. Okay. All right. So you have to work on that. You have to work on, on not being so addicted to, to admiration. Fine. But the giving of tzedakah satisfies a part of you which does it only because it's a mitzvah to give tzedakah. So don't deprive that part of you of the mitzvah because there is a more shallow part of you that is involved in some narishkeit, some nonsense, some, some, something, something that is not that important. Not that important. Insignificant. Anyway, that, and that's all about doing mitzvahs with God. The same thing is about friendships that the mission is trying to say over here. That even if you have a friendship, and you start to feel that the friendship is it's not uh, it's not a don't give up on the relationship. Don't give up on the relationship. A friendship is a good thing. I'll never forget them. I think I told you the story once, but um, it was such an it was such a bizarre experience that um, anyway. Bottom line is that one day when I was in in yeshiva. A friend of mine and a friend and I, a friend and I got into a little bit of a disagreement about something, about uh, where, uh, something about Pesach, something about Passover. So we got into a little bit of an argument. So, so I was, uh, I was a little bit, uh, I was in a bad mood. You know, I, I don't like to have arguments with people, and I was in a bad mood. So I was sulking. On the schools, uh, the school had a playground. You know, this was a rabbinical college. It also had a high school. It also had a, a elementary school. So there was a playground. So I'm sitting on the swing. There's nobody else around. I'm just sitting there sulking. And this kid wanders out of class. The kid must have been 11. He knows me a little bit. He comes over. He's like, hey, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in yeshiva. So I said, yeah, no, nothing. He's like, whoa, you look really upset. What's going on? So no, 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 not knowing why. Till today, I don't know why I told him. I said, yeah, I'm a friend, a friend of mine and I had a little bit of a, an argument, so I'm a little bit upset. So he says to this kid, this 11-year-old kid, and, I, and I, now he's an adult, and, and I actually asked him about it, and he doesn't remember the story, and he doesn't know where he would have heard such a thing. He doesn't know anything. He says, this little kid says to me, you know, the Yetzirah knows which people have the potential to become your best friends, and therefore he does everything he can to ruin your friendship. I said, is that so? <laughs> That's very interesting. He says, he's like, people that you will never become best friends with, Yitzhahara lets your friendships thrive. No big deal. But somebody that could really become a dear friend, always something comes up to try to derail the friendship. So that is essentially the, Mishnah, the, the message from this Mishnah, that if you have a friendship that is, that is uh, Taluya B'davar, you have a friendship that is not the most altruistic the purest friendship in the world, or even a marriage, or brothers and sisters, or any kind of relationship that is supposed to be pure, maintain it. Maintain it even if it's not the most pure, uh, uh, un unconditional love, because there is unconditional love hidden there, and if you work on it long enough, it'll reveal itself. But don't give up on it. All right, that's the story with the Mishnah about love.
Now let's talk to the, now let's go to the Mishnah about disagreement. The Mishnah said that any dis- disagreement that is for God's sake will last forever, and a disagreement that is not for God's sake will not last forever. Obviously, simple question, why would you want a disagreement to last forever? He said a disagreement that is l'shem shamayim, a, disagree- a machloket, let's use the word machloket, machloket means a disagreement. A machloket that is, for God's sake, will last forever. So it will last forever. Well, why is that a good thing? Why, why is that a good thing? Why isn't it better that we would say that a machloket that is, uh, for God's sake, will quickly be resolved and the machloket will not last too long? That would seem to be much better. In fact, if you look around in your life, you do find the opposite. You do find that machloket that is driven by self-interest very often lasts forever. That people cannot reconcile, they cannot resolve their differences, and they remain in a state of uh, hostility to each other till their dying day. And why can't they make peace? Because the whole thing is not driven by some higher purpose. It was all self-interest. And that seems to be what you see. So then why is the Mishnah saying that a machloket that is, for God's sake, will endure forever? And a machloket that is not for God's sake will dissipate very quickly. We're missing something here. Something is not making sense. There's some dissonance here. The Mishnah is not as simple as it appears to be. The message of the Mishnah is not as simple as it appears to be. It seems like it, you know, if, you, if the machloket is for God's sake, then the machloket will, uh, will, will, uh, it won't cause any problem. But if it's not, but that's what the Mishnah is saying. The Mishnah is saying the machloket will last forever. So what is the Mishnah exactly trying to say over here? What's so great about a machloket lasting forever? So the answer is, a machloket that lasts forever doesn't mean a machloket where the two sides can't forgive each other. The Talmud tells us that Shammai and Hillel were the best, dearest of friends. The two of them were the best friends. And yet they argued every day on every subject. They argued and argued and argued. They didn't, they didn't forego their disagreements out of love for each other. They understood that, that the, the absence of controversy, the absence of disagreement, does not automatically mean the presence of love and peace. People are different. People are different. God made people different. So therefore, to imagine that we're never going to argue, that we're never going to disagree, that is not peace. That's imaginary. That's, that's fantasy. It's not peace. If anything, it's communism. Where everyone is forced to hide their differences so that we can pretend that there is equality. But hiding differences is not peace. Pretending like we're all the same is not peace. In fact, it has the potential to be worse and more destructive than any controversy. That you're suppressing differences. That is not peace. So Shammai and Hillel did not suppress their disagreements. They didn't say, oh, you know what, I don't really agree with you, but you know what, it's okay, I'm going to... No! They argued. 
And they argued specifically because it was for God's sake. And therefore they couldn't set aside their opinion because it wasn't about what they thought. It wasn't about they wanted to be right. Each one of them wanted to make sure that God was getting what he wanted. That God is getting what he wants. So how do you say, ah, you know what? For the sake of peace, I'm going to uh, deprive God of what he wants. I'm just going to say that you're right, even though I think you're wrong. No, that's not peace and that's not good. So they argued. But they were dearest of friends. So why? So then why did they argue all the time? The machloket lasts forever not because they couldn't forgive each other. They had nothing to forgive each other for. They weren't upset at each other. The disagreements didn't, didn't lead to hurt feelings. The reason why they argued forever and the reason why their arguments last forever and this is the key is because they were both correct. This, this, this is the point. And a machloket that is not for God's sake, you can know 1,000% that one side is right and the other side is wrong. And a machloket where one side is right and one side is wrong, that machloket should not last forever. It should only last as long as it takes to determine who's right and who's wrong. That's all. So therefore, such a machloket cannot last forever unless, like it is in so many political debates, unless it isn't really a debate. Unless it isn't really a disagreement. You know, you see this in political debates between politicians and political debates between private citizens. That it's not a disagreement. It's just taking sides. And that is not a machloket. That's not even a machloket. A machloket, in the words of the Mishnah, a machloket is a disagreement. When you have two people each one arguing aside, neither listening to the other. There is no chance that anyone is going to convince anyone else of their position. That is not a machloket. That is not a disagreement. They're not disagreeing with each other. They just, they just refuse to get on each other's side. In fact, very often, they agree with each other, or one side agrees with the other, but he will not go over to the other side, because the essence of this fight is taking sides. That's all. It's not a, it's not a philosophical, ideological, it's not a disagreement. So that's not what the Mishnah is talking about. The Mishnah is talking about where there is really a genuine, sincere disagreement. Well, a disagreement that is not about godly matters and it's a sincere disagreement, one opinion is right and the other opinion is wrong, and they will quickly resolve who's right and who's wrong, and the machloket will be over. The thing with machloket about godly matters, Sassi, you're trying to say I, something? Yeah, uh, Rabbi, it's, it's an opinion. Opinion. And so, so you are saying, uh, uh, let's come to a common ground. But... Shammai and Hillel, both of them have different opinion. And, and, and they are still friends. This is good for, for our, our discussion and for the, our religion and our everything. This is great that people don't have, have disagreement, they are still love each other. But what about the people that don't have those kind of tools? The whole world, 
The whole world is. I want to get half against the, 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 the other half. I don't, let's not talk about the whole world. I know what you're talking about, but talking about the whole world is basically is an exercise in futility. But let's talk about political arguments between people. We really should never, ever engage in political arguments because they are not disagreements. They're not. If you want to argue about values and you are not arguing the politics, you will find that the same discussion, if you leave all the politics out of it, if you take all the politics away from it, if you swear to each other not to mention any politics, only to discuss the values the, the, then it becomes a machloket. Then it becomes a sane, um, respectful disagreement. And you'll see that there will not be a disagreement for too long because one side will convince the other that he's right. It's only politics. Is, is There is no disagreement. It's just sides. And like, you know, you say in Hebrew, Altam vareach ein lehitvakeach. You don't argue about um, in regards to matters of taste and, uh, and smell. Because you cannot, it's not a disagreement. person who loves chocolate, the other person loves vanilla, they don't disagree with each other. They just will never be convinced. So therefore, they should not argue. But let's go back to Shammai and Hillel. The Shammai and Hillel disagreement, the essence is that they are both Right? They are both correct. And therefore the machloket can never end. Because they're both correct. When you, are, when you are discussing God's will, and you mean it, and you mean it, not when you're arguing politics and disguising it as a, as a religious debate. When you are discussing Yiddishkeit, and you mean it, then two people who disagree with each other are both correct. Not one is right, one is wrong. They are both right. Now, it's true that the, the law will only become like one of them. The halakha will only follow one of them. But that's just the halakha. The theories behind the disagreements are both correct. Let me give you an example. Everybody knows how to light a Hanukkah menorah. Right? On the first night, you light one candle. On the second night, you light two candles. And on the third night, you light three candles. Very good. Now, did you know that how to light the Hanukkah menorah is a machloket between Hillel and Shammai? And we light the menorah according to the opinion of Hillel, who said the first night you light one, and the second night you light two, and then increasingly you, you add one every night. Shammai said, no, the first night of Hanukkah you light eight, and the second night of Hanukkah you light seven, and the third night of Hanukkah you light six, and on the last night of Hanukkah you light one. That is a machloket between Hillel and Shammai. What's the reasoning behind the machloket? Well, Shammai says, honor the amount of days of Hanukkah that are still ahead of you. Look ahead 
See how many days of Hanukkah are still here, are still ahead of us, and light a candle for each night of Hanukkah that is still ahead of you. On the first night of Hanukkah, there are eight days left. Light eight candles. On the second night of Hanukkah, there are seven days of Hanukkah left. Light seven candles, one for each day. And so on and so forth. Honor the future. Celebrate the future. Look to the future. Hillel says, Shammai, what you're saying is so sweet. What you're saying is so nice. But, ma'alin ba'kodesh ve'ein moridin. When it comes to matters of holiness, we only increase. We never go backwards. So therefore, as much as your argument is sweet, we cannot have Jews lighting less candles the second night than they lit the first night, because in matters of Yiddishkeit, we only go upwards and onwards, we don't go down. So we can't go 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You have to go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So now, so now answer me. Who's right? Who's right? The answer is, they're both right. They are both correct that God believes both of these values. God believes that you should honor the future and that you should look towards the future and you have to see how much the work there is left to done for you to do. You have to see how much light there is left for you to, 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 to shine. God, of course God believes that. And yet of course God believes that we only increase in matters of holiness. You never go backwards. So therefore you can't light eight and then seven. God agrees with both. So now, because we live in a physical universe where you can only do one, right? The first night of Hanukkah, you either light one candle or eight candles. You can't do both. So therefore, the halakha, which means halakha comes from the word movement, movement. Therefore, the halakha, the law, is going to have to be like one of them. In this case, the halakha is like Hillel. But that doesn't mean that Shammai is wrong. Shammai was not wrong. His opinion is not wrong. His opinion is right. And therefore, this machloket cannot end. It can't end. A machloket can only end when one side is right and the other side is wrong. <laughs> but when you're talking about godliness, both opinions are two elements of holiness. Neither one of them is going to be wrong. I'm going to give you one more example before we wrap this up. For two and a half years, listen to this. For two and a half years, Hillel and Shammai duked it out in regarding, in regarding the following point. Mutav le'adam shenivra Oh, mutav adam shelonivra. Is it better for people to have been born, or is it better for a person not to have been born? Can you imagine such a machloket? Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Life is full of blessings and good days, and then life is full of very, very horrible, hard, hard days. Right? Life is full of a person making good choices, doing mitzvahs. And life is also full, unfortunately, most people have their moments of weakness and they do the opposite of a mitzvah and they make a bad choice. So Hillel and Shammai having this argument. So bottom line, is life worth it or is it not worth it?
You know what we need right now? A little shot of uh, a little shot of uh, whiskey. That's what we need right now. Here we are discussing about whether whether it's good that we were born or whether it's bad that we were born. But we're so far from each other. This is this is not the right setting for this. <laughs> this needs a fabrengen. But that was their machloket. You know, Rabbi, if somebody is miserable in his life, not successful, and this. They, they would probably say, well, what do I need this life? Uh, the other person, you cannot answer, you cannot answer this kind of, I mean, you know, uh, in my opinion, you cannot answer this kind of question if you're not born in order to see the, the, the differences. Right. Exactly. So that's why Hill and Shammai are arguing whether it's good to be born or not. Is it good to be born and risk having a miserable life? Or is it not good to be born and don't have any of that risk, and you also don't have a chance of having a wonderful life. But the, obviously, obviously, as Lubavitcher, as, as Hasidim, the question is deeper than this. The question is deeper than this. The question is really, is it good that anything exists besides God? Or is it not good? And to put it to put it short in short and sweet words, Hillel said, "It's very good. It's very good that a person was born. It's better that we. It's better to exist." And Shammai said, "No, it's not better to exist." And what's the reasoning behind their argument? Shammai says it's not better to exist because the whole reason why God gives you your existence is in order that you should use it to serve God. But the best way to serve God is to not exist. That way, there's no chance you're going to get in His way. So it would be better, for the purposes of serving God, it would be better to not exist. Since the whole reason for existence is so that you should overcome your, your, your lusts, and your temptations, and your ego, and your greed, and this and that, and serve Hashem, then it would be better if we and our greed and our temptation and our ego didn't exist. Hillel says, that is not, that is not right. Hillel says, the reason God created us with our vices, with our temptations, with our um, greed, and with our ego, is because God wanted us to make those th- to use those things to become more godly. God wanted a, a home in a low, lowly realm, a realm where people have ego and greed and a lust for power. And God wanted us to manipulate those unholy energies and use them to, to make the world holy. So you use your ambition to, to help as many people as you can. You use your greed to give as much tzedakah as you can, and so on and so forth. So Hillel says to Shammai, how exactly were we supposed to do that if we wouldn't, be exist, if we wouldn't exist? So Shammai says to Hillel, oh, it's very nice what you're saying, that we're supposed to use our greed to give a lot of tzedakah, but what ha- <laughs> how many of us use our greed to give a lot of tzedakah? It's not worth it. Hillel says, of course it's worth it. Shammai says, it's not worth it. Who's right? They're both right. 
They're both right. The bottom line is we don't have a say in the matter. At the end of the day, you agree with Hillel, you agree with Shammai, it don't matter. You exist anyway. <laughs> it's not like if the halacha comes down to Shammai, then we'll all cease to exist. We exist anyway. So the question is, who is right in this argument? Well, the answer is, of course, they're both right. Hillel is right that the, that the opportunities of existence are wonderful, and Shammai is right that the dangers of existence are terrible. They're both right. Never will one of them be wrong. And that's why the machloket sofal hitkayem, the machloket will last forever. Because when you're debating godly values, both opinions are right. So now let's finish off with the last two minutes of this class to discuss the embarrassing reaction to this tragic crime in Texas. Every idiot, as they used to say in 770, every, every idiot is yelling and screaming about everything except the issue at hand. About everything. This is right, he's right, your fault, my fault, all our fault, you're bad, I'm bad, we're all bad. We have to put an end, not, not, not to all, we don't have power, just between ourselves. We have to, whenever the world, whenever the world, when I say the world, I mean the popular culture, goes in one direction, take my word for it, go in the opposite direction. When the whole world is embroiled in a, in a, in a school shooting, don't say a word about it. The whole thing is Shelo L'Shem Shemaim. The whole argument, everybody making noise about it, nobody, nobody is talking about the actual issue. Everyone is trying to stake a position, everyone is trying to signal a virtue, everyone is trying to... And, and if, it, if it wasn't on the heels of a tragedy, so you'd say, okay, it's politics as usual. But on the, on the backs of people who are suffering unspeakable pain, and you're going to talk about, no, it's my fault. No, it's your fault. It's my fault. It, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Why are you even talking? A machloket that is not for a godly sake, which in, in this case is about the, the sanctity of life. The ones making the most noise on both sides, on three sides, on the four sides of the issue, no matter how many sides there are, they all know that what they are yelling and screaming about is not a solution. It's just that they have chosen a side and, they will, and that is what it is, choosing sides. It's not a disagreement. It's not a debate. You don't hear any debate. There's no debate. It's one side. It's one side screaming till they're blue about their about their position. The other side screams their position. and everybody hates each other. And the poor children and their families. Nobody's nobody's even talking about them. So just take this. Just take this little nugget of, of advice, and you can take it. Or if you want, you can leave it. Whenever the popular culture is is shouting about something. You want to do the wisest thing? Don't get involved. Don't say, yeah, don't say this way. Don't say that way. Because it's not a machloket. It's not even a disagreement. It's just a shouting match. So what do you do? Don't, 
Don't wait. Wait till it passes. Don't express anything. Nobody needs you to express anything. If your heart is broken, your heart is broken. Who needs you to express anything? Wait till the ad kiyav or zam. Wait until the storm passes. And when the storm passes, then if you have an idea that you think could be constructive, then you can express it. And maybe one sane person out there will listen to you and, and maybe they'll be able to talk about it. But when the storm is storming, your voice will just get drowned out in the hurricane of, 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 uh, of shouting matches of two sides or three sides, each one trying to shout louder than the other. It's not a machloket. And you can tell that it's not a machloket because people are saying things that they know are not true. But they're trying to be sensational. They're trying to get the biggest bang for their buck. And if it wouldn't be on the backs of human suffering, you could, you could forgive it and forget it and turn away. But on the backs of people's suffering, you cannot get involved in this issue because it's poisonous. A machloket shalil shem shamayim is already not a good thing. This is not even a machloket shalil shem shamayim. It's not even a machloket. It's not even a debate. There's no debating. There's not even any disagreeing. Everyone agrees. Everyone, every normal person agrees about the horrible, brutal pain of what's going on. And yet that is the one thing that nobody will talk about because it's too much, there's too much unanimity. We agree on that. Now, we don't want to talk about what we, what we all agree on. We want to yell and shout and pretend that, that we have a big debate raging over here. But we don't. We don't. You talk to politicians, you talk to, to journalists, you talk to people that are in politics, they tell you eh, there is no disagreement. The politicians get up in front of the cameras and pretend to be the biggest foes, the biggest enemies, and yell at each other and hurl insults at each other because they want the two sides to get roiled up and make contributions to their campaigns. But when the cameras turn off, these people are buddies. They, the issues don't mean anything to them. It's just fodder, it's just cannon fodder to get people like you and me worked up about political issues. What do we have to do with political issues? So that's all. Stay out of it. You don't have to listen to me. You could all, you're old enough to be my parents. But if you want my opinion, stay out of it. Don't debate it with anybody. Don't discuss with anybody outside your immediate circle of friends who are discussing it out of true pain. But on social media or anything like that, don't even, don't even, it doesn't matter, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And when the issue is yesterday's news, then the people that really care will keep talking about it and everybody else will move on to whatever's in the news the next day. You think this, this journalist that was killed in Gaza, you think anybody on planet Earth cares about her? Nobody cares about her. But if you can use it to hurt Israel, oh, it's big news, huge news. Oh, and then the Jews get, it, get, get, get dragged into it to defend Israel. What are you defending Israel? There's nothing, there's nothing to defend Israel from. They hated us yesterday, they're going to hate us today and hate us tomorrow. They don't think Israel did anything, they're just saying it. So what are you going to argue? When you argue with someone that's not being logical, you're just strengthening them. Don't argue. That's an end of rant. I hope you enjoyed this Mishnah, Perkyavis class. Now I'd love to hear what you